So, how long have we supported you guys? It's like been like forever. 24 years. 24 years. I'm not even that old. <laughs> okay, I'm like, easy, oh. easy, pal. <laughs> Yeah, right. Don't get struck down in church, right? <laughs> <laughs> we try not to lie from the pulpit. Um, anyway, we've been supporting the Christians for a very long time, and um, excellent people, and their ministry sort of uh, shifted a few years ago. I'll let him talk about all that, but, um, uh, you know, church planting was a big part of what they were out there to do, and now there's a seminary up and going, because I, I believe, personally, that the training men for the ministry is the crying need of the mission field, really. It's, uh, there's just not enough people. There's the, the gospel is going out and people are responding, but there aren't trained men to, to shepherd them and disciple them. So that's really part of what's going on there in South Africa. So I'm going to let uh, Mark take over. So Mark and Debbie, they're here from South Africa. Um, please get to know them while you've got a little bit of time. We're going to go out to lunch after, but you'll have a few minutes when we're done here. And we're going to hand it over to you, Mark. So please come. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. It's uh, been three and a half years. I think October of 2016 was when Debbie and I were last here. And this is the first time in this venue. So I think every other time we've seen you over at the school. And so we're glad to see you finally on your own property. So uh, we were a little confused when we drove in this morning, but uh, we weren't sure. We had the address, and Google said we were at the right place, and I was arguing with Google. And uh, then my wife started arguing with me, and both Google and my wife won the argument. So I was at the right place. So, uh, but we're glad to be with you. Uh, this is a trip that we weren't sure when it was going to happen. It was supposed to happen last April. And of course, we all know what happened there. We don't need to go into those details. And then uh, we rescheduled for August, and uh, South Africa still was not flying out of the country yet. And uh, so we had to wait, and then we booked it for February 22nd, and then Emirates said, well, we're no longer flying in and out of South Africa because of the South African variant. So then we had to deal with Emirates Air, and they finally rebooked us on Turkish Air, and so we came through Istanbul instead of Dubai this time. And we're still not sure what's going to happen when we try to go home at the end of April. And uh, so you can be in prayer about that. that. Everything's up in the air these days with COVID. So it makes traveling a very unique experience and uh, sometimes frustrating because of the hours on the phone and emails back and forth and trying to get things sorted out. But by God's good grace, we made it. And uh, we made it COVID-free, thankfully. And uh, so uh, it's a long trip, 10,000 miles. So you're kind of sitting there wondering, uh, I hope the oak behind me doesn't have uh, COVID. Uh, but everybody has to be tested, and we were tested, and we had a clean bill of health. And so we're here, and I'll just quickly tell you about the ministry before we open up God's Word. Uh, as Wayne said, uh, you've been supporting us for, I think it's 23 years. And this week, we celebrate our 20, the completion of our 26th year in Cape Town, South Africa. And so we have been there, and we're starting our 27th year now. And many of those years, we're involved with church planting. And now we're involved in a training center or a seminary. Uh, we call it Berean Bible Institute. And we're, we're doing that out of the first church plant that we were involved with, Everglen Baptist Church. And so they have the physical plant, they have the building, and so we're going to be using their building on Tuesday and Thursday nights 
uh, for our training center. And God has provided uh, three or four other men to help me with the teaching and the lecturing. And uh, all of them South Africans. All of them attended the Master's Seminary. All of them now in ministry in the greater metropolitan area of Cape Town, which is now some four million people or so. And so these men are helping me. In fact, right now there's a course ongoing, a New Testament survey. And one of my Timothys is teaching that, Denver Solomon, who's now the pastor of the Czech second church plant we were involved with. And uh, so you need good churches and then out of those good churches, you need to start some kind of a training center. And so that's what we're doing. That's how we want to end our ministry in South Africa is on that high note because I can plant churches, but I can only plant one at a time. And so we came to the conclusion it would be better to uh, train 15 or 20 or however many God gives us to plant and pastor churches there in the greater Cape Town metropolitan area. And uh, so that's what we're doing. I can train more men than I can plant churches. And so we're, we're now involved in that. We've had a slow rollout because of COVID. And uh, there's still a lot to do. Uh, we've had a number of books donated. We're starting a library. And uh, we had another uh, supporting churches donate the money we need to for, for some desks. Uh, another church donated money to do some renovations. And uh, so we're, we're slowly but surely <coughs> gathering ahead of steam. And you can pray for us in that regard because it'll be a long, slow rollout for us. Uh, but we praise God that we've gotten started and uh, we'll see where the Lord takes us in the next few years. And uh, so we're anxious to see where, uh, what God wants to do there as far as training men for the work of ministry. <coughs> so you can, you can ask questions after the service, and I'll be happy to try to answer those. We did bring some prayer cards. I don't know if you still have some from last time we were here, but we'll leave those with whoever's kind of in charge of that. And uh, so if you want to pray for us on a regular basis, if you ever want to contact us, the email's there. And uh, we do respond. So uh, we, we're, we try to be good about our communication on that front. So all of that uh, to say thank you. Thank you for your part. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for your years of uh, faithfully praying for us. And uh, so that's why it's good just to come back and to say hello and to say, hey, we're still there by God's good grace. And uh, don't grow weary in well-doing. And we'll try not to grow weary in well-doing on our side either. So, um, But this morning I want to open up God's word to you and uh, kind of end on a missions note if I can. And I want to preach from Psalm 2 this morning. And I think the, the ending of it all certainly applies to our times and what we should be doing in these very uncertain times, uh, very unique times. And uh, Psalm 2 has a, a lot of uh, great, great information for us and application for us. So let me begin reading, and I'm using a borrowed Bible, believe it or not. Uh, if you can imagine that, a missionary borrowing a Bible. Uh, that's because I use digital all the time. And I, I'm at the age now, remember, I've been out there almost 27 years. So I'm using large print Bibles now. And uh, those are heavy, especially mine, because the print is so large. So uh, I leave that at home. 
and I have another large print Bible here in storage and believe it or not I haven't made it to the storage bin yet to pull out my Bible so I borrowed one I think this is uh, I'm not even sure what version I better check the version the English, English Standard Version okay I think I can track with that this morning so but uh, so if you're wondering what version is he reading out of it's the English Standard Version and let me begin reading in verse 1. There's no inscription here in this particular psalm, though it may be a Davidic psalm, we're not sure. But it begins in verse 1 of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O king, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Bless, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's just quickly ask God to bless his word this morning. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and act in, and I thank you for uh, Pastor Wayne and, and for Pastor Mark and for their faithfulness here. Yes, sir. I thank you for uh, the many years of partnership that we have enjoyed with this church. We thank you for their faithful support, for their faithful prayers. We ask your supreme blessing upon them and we pray that you would provide for them each step of the way and that you would even provide that building that they have envisioned. So Lord, may you undertake for them as they have undertaken for us all these many years. And Lord, now we just, as we look into your word, may you guide and direct us. And Lord, may you help us to apply that which we can derive from your word this morning. And we pray it all in Christ's name and for his glory, amen. Well, I've entitled the message, The Coronation of the King, When Christocracy Replaces Democracy. I think the title will become clear as we make our way through this. But I, I don't think I have to tell you or belabor the point that uh, we are seeing an anti-Christian sentiment sweeping not only the secular West, but it's sweeping the globe. And it seems to be gaining momentum by the day. It's hard to believe that many Christian institutions and parachurch organizations that remain faithful to the Word of God are now considered hate groups. Hate groups by our politicians, by mainline media, uh, groups like the Family Research Council and the Alliance Defending Freedom and other various organizations are now considered hate groups by ABC, CBS, NBC. I remember when some of uh, Donald Trump's appointments for high governmental service 
were going before the various senators and congressmen and uh, there were democratic senators who were saying if you hold to that evangelical faith you are not fit for governmental service whoever thought we would reach such a day remember three years ago the Pope not to be left out lumped evangelical Christians with ISIS and Al-Qaeda because of their quote theopolitics Christians are regularly being sued by the LGBTQIA+, whatever it is this week, for failing to bake wedding cakes, taking wedding photos, or to make floral arrangements for same-sex weddings. In Canada, for the last few years now, it has been illegal to correct your children when they claim to be the gender other than that which they were born. In fact, even this past week, I was reading about a father in Canada who was arrested for failing to use his daughter's preferred gender pronouns. And then, of course, there is our brother James Coates, who has been imprisoned uh, for his faith. And I understand he is to be released if he has not already been released and faces a court date early in May. All of this absurdity is enough to discourage those of us who have enjoyed the unparalleled freedoms and opportunities in the West. But take heart, my brothers and sisters, for this is not the last chapter. This is not the crescendo. This is not the climax. This is far from over. And if Psalm 2 is anything to go by, and it is, the final word is yet to be spoken, and justice will someday be served, and it won't be social justice. Amen. Psalm 2 is unique in that it is a royal enthronement psalm with definite messianic implications, not only for the past, but for the future. That future day which we still await, the blessed return of the Lord Jesus Christ after the seven-year tribulation. Well, it had practical historical significance in Israel's ancient past, it also contains a vivid portrayal of things yet to come. The author of the psalm is unknown. Yet it has a style, it has a form, it has a theology that emphasizes the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7 beginning in verse 8. All of which indicates that it was probably written early in the monarchial period of ancient Israel. So it could even be a Davidic psalm, we're not sure on that. It's certainly not a hill I'm going to die on. But... We know that it applies to the Davidic covenant. So based on all of this this morning, and based on the four poetic stanzas that flow from the psalm, we want to, we want to look at four scenes of the coronation of the king and then apply that to our own day and age. There's scene one in verses one through three, which highlights the confederacy of the rebellious. In scene two, in verses four through six, we see the divine comedic response of the Lord to the confederacy of the rebellious. And then in scene three, there is the certain rule of the king. And finally, there is the grand conclusion 
In scene four, where we see the compassionate reminder to the rebellious. So let's begin in scene one of Psalm 2 here, the confederacy of the rebellious in verses 1 through 3. Let's read those three verses again. Please follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalm begins on the occasion of a question. And the narrator of the psalm is amazed. He is stupefied by the intellectual stupor of the masses at large as they take aim at God with all of their emotional outrage and distemper. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? We live in what I like to call a post-rational age where it's no longer reasonable to exercise sound reason. We're living in the age of the reprobate mind of Romans chapter 128 where God has given over the society at large to their sinful thinking. And this reprobate mind has produced an attitude and an outlook which is no longer able to discern between right and wrong. It is a mind that is morally insensate. Certainly that is the kind of mind that we see here in Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3 where the heathen rage, as it says in some of the older translations. You see, in the ancient Near East societies, a change of leadership often provided the soil of uncertainty that would sometimes herald the attack of a kingdom's enemies. That was always a good time to begin a war when there was a change of regimes. I'm old enough to remember when Ronald Reagan was inaugurated in January of 1981. I was a young 18-year-old airman in the U.S. Air Force. And I remember that day that saw 52 American hostages in Iran immediately released on Inauguration Day after 444 days of captivity. Why? Because the days of weak-willed Casper milk toast leadership were over. And they were now replaced with a no-nonsense leader who would not long suffer the fools of Iran. There was a new sheriff in town, and it was no longer going to be business as usual. That is oftentimes the kind of soil that a new regime provides. And the psalm here details this united resistance of this confederacy of evil in two ways. Firstly, the futility of their folly in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? There are two primary terms that are used here to describe the confederacy of, angel, of evil here. Nations and peoples. Nations describes borders and territories 
and, and the represented governments of these various people. Whereas the term peoples or people underscores blood kinship ties and the different people groups that enjoy these blood kinship ties. Those that are related to one another somehow. And so by using these two terms, the psalmist covers all of the bases outside of Israel. All of the Gentile world is included in this. So what is it about these nations that take center stage? They're in an uproar. It says that they are raging. In other words, there is a seething, boiling rage and manifest restlessness because their power base is being challenged and it's being challenged by none other than God himself. In South Africa, they have a term. Don't get your knickers in a knot. <laughs> right here, we see the nations, the Gentile nations, they have their knickers in the proverbial knot, and I might add it's a Gordian knot. And their rage is so intense, and it's so visceral, that it serves as the binding address which forges the superficial unity of the world against God's anointed. It's irrational. They're foaming at the mouth and saying. And the only binding address here is their hatred for God and their hatred for the one that he will appoint who will be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who is the anointed. By way of implication, of course, all those who follow God, all those who await the installation of the anointed one, Jesus Christ, will also be in the crosshairs. In ancient Israel, when a nation attacked a king, that attack was also perceived to be upon God himself because of the theocratic status that ancient Israel enjoyed. Hence, the psalmist says here, it is a vain thing at the end of verse 1. It, it's useless. The, the nations, they plot, they scheme, they strategize. But it all comes to naught. They think their problem is God when in fact they are the problem. And so all the plotting, all the scheming, all the strategizing, all amounts and results to one big double, double, nothing burger without a bun. <laughs> you might even say that they are on the wrong side of history. Somebody told me I was on the wrong side of history. I informed them they were on the wrong side of eternity. <laughs> Amen. And so we see the futility of their folly in verse 1. And then in verses 2 through 3, this confederacy of the rebellious, we see the futility of their limitations. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Can't you almost see the United Nations here? The International Monetary Fund, the World Health Organization, all planning, plotting, scheming the big reset that they want against the Lord and against his anointed, that would be Jesus Christ, 
saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But you see, there are limits. <clears throat> there are limits to what they can do. There are limits to what they can say. Note that the text informs us, but these are but earthly kings. They're not cosmic power rangers. They're not some kind of superheroes. They are not semi-divine beings. They are merely earthly beings. And they have vast constraints that are placed upon them. And their influence is limited to this earthly sphere and only this earthly sphere. There is only so much that they can do. And the vast constraints and limits of their power and might means that all of their efforts will ultimately come to naught. This is a fruitless endeavor. They say, let us tear their fetters apart. This is just a, a metaphorical statement for the fact that they do not want to be in bondage to God. They see service to God as drudgery, as bondage. It is all reminiscent of the trial of Jesus when he goes before Pilate. And Pilate presents Jesus and Barabbas to the baying crowd. And the response concerning Jesus was a resounding, we will not have this man to rule over us. They're deranged. <laughs> Amen. They're unhinged. So it is that the rule of God in the lives of the godless is unthinkable. And, and thought to be some kind of unspeakable torture and bondage. The precursors to this are so evident in our own day, aren't they? The cry is, we want to be free. Free of God. Free of godly restraints. We are on the right side of history. We have come, at a, come of age. We are more progressive than those troglodyte Christians. We are the enlightened ones. We are advanced in our thinking. C.H. Spurgeon said of these first three verses, we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. These first three verses remind me of Ernst Henley's poem, Invictus. And that stanza where he states, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishment, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is the creed of the world. That is the creed of the nations that rage against God. That is the creed of the confederacy of the rebellious. But it will not end well for them. That's scene one. Scene two. In scene two, we see the, com the divine comedic response of the Lord in verses four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, when you compare 
verses 4 through 6, but verses 1 through 3, it is laughable to even try to compare human potentates who are earthbound to the God of creation of whom it is said he sits in the heavens. It's his power, his authority, and his sovereignty that rises far, far above the confines of our gravitational pull here on planet Earth. We see a, a wonderful picture here of his sovereignty, high and lifted up. And what's so no noteworthy here? He's sitting. He sits. When it comes to this confederacy of the rebellious, God doesn't even have to stand up. He doesn't even have to move a finger. He sits on his throne in heaven and he issues his indictment. That's why it's so laughable. That's why he scoffs at them. This is why God mocks and taunts them. And note his twofold response here. First, it's a derisive response in verse 4. He mocks and he scoffs at them. He sits in the heavens and he laughs and he holds them in derision. He mocks them from his throne, from the place of all sovereignty, a place of divine kingship. This is not the only time in Scripture where it says that God laughs at them. There are many places, but let me just give you a couple more examples out of the Psalms, staying close to our context here. But in Psalm 37 and verse 13, we read these words, Psalm 37, 13, But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. In other words, the status quo isn't going to last forever. <coughs> the clock is ticking. The years are fleeting. And before you know it, you've spent 26 years on the mission field. And so their days will be numbered. One other, uh, Psalm 59 Psalm 59 and verse 8. And here it says again, But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. You see, God can laugh. Why does he laugh? Because he knows the end from the beginning. And everything that is in between from A to Z and so it is ludicrous for the nations to think that their imbecilic plans can win the day, and so God laughs at them. They might think that they have won a battle, but you know what? They've lost the war. And so it's a derisive response from God himself. It's also a unilateral response. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, 
my holy hill. Our democratically obsessed world doesn't like to be left out of the decision-making process. But the Lord doesn't need the world to weigh in on his sovereign plan for the agents. He doesn't need to hire a consulting firm to help him make a decision. He doesn't need to hire oppositional research firms like Fusion GPS to dig up dirt on his opponents and on his enemies because he knows the beginning from the end because he planned it all. And so he pours out his wrath eventually in a heated rage that terrifies the nations. He terrifies them not with idle threats, not with artificial red lines drawn in the sand. Rather, he terrifies them with the sovereign appointment of the king of his choosing. There is no ballot box. Amen. There is no presidential campaign. And the description in verse 6 here details that it is he and he alone who installs his king. He is the sole agent of this coronation and this inauguration. He says, it is my king and I will install my king on my holy mountain, which is Jerusalem. He chooses the king, and he chooses the place, as well as the time. Amen. It is like God is taunting the world. And he's saying, go ahead, punks. Make my day. I am appointing the king of my choosing with or without your approval. It is all by divine appointment. It is a unilateral divine appointment by God. There are no multi-billion dollar presidential campaigns, which is absolutely obscene. There are no irritating phone calls, no parade of endless campaign com commercials, no bogus straw polls by the lying, thieving media. Nothing but unilateral sovereign action on the part of God himself. Reminds me of one of my favorite chapters in all the Old Testament. Out of Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah 40 and in verse 15, we read these words. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All of the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. In other words, God is in charge. God is in complete control. Who is going to tell God what to do? The Lord doesn't need to consult with anyone outside of the Trinitarian Godhead. Amen. And while this royal psalm historically applied to every Davidic king in ancient Israel, it ultimately applies to God's king, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so there is a unilateral response here. God's in charge. In the first 300 years of the church, there were over 10 waves of Roman persecution. 
with the most severe of those waves of persecution being perpetrated by a man by the name of Diocletian. And so severe was Diocletian's hatred for the Church of Jesus Christ that when he conquered Spain, he had two monuments erected to eulogize his success. On the first monument erected in Diocletian's honor, he had these words included on the inscription that Diocletian had extinguished the name of Christian who brought the Republic to ruin. On the second monument erected in Diocletian's honor, he had these words inscribed that Diocletian had, quote, everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ for having extended the worship of the gods. Now, how many people have heard of Diocletian? <laughs> Not many. He's dead. He's gone. But Christ lives on. God is in control. There will be a unilateral response when Christ returns in Matthew chapter 25 at the end of the seven-year tribulation. So both the rebellious resistance and the divine comedic response then lead to scene three. What is scene three? It is the certain rule of the king. Verses seven through nine. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the certain rule of the king. And note the nature of his rule. First, he rules by decree. And second, he rules universally. In verse 7, it tells us that he rules by decree. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It is clear from verse 7 that the sovereignly appointed king rules by the decree of God the Father. All of this is a prerogative which is granted to the king by virtue of his sonship which he enjoys by way of the father. And this is all language that flows out of the Davidic covenant. Out of 2 Samuel chapter 7 where, where you see a father-son relationship that is developed there as the central theme. In the ancient Near East Kings were oftentimes thought to be the son of the gods and the goddesses who cohabitated in the heavens. But they were merely human. These ancient kings were also thought to be divine, or in some cases semi-divine, by way of this relationship that they had with the pantheon of gods that they served. But you see, this was not so in ancient theocratic Israel where the kings did not enjoy any form of divine status. On the contrary, these ancient Jewish kings were merely the earthly representatives of the one true God. That is why if you attacked an earthly king like King David, it was as if you were attacking God himself. 
maybe all of those who are putting Christians in their crosshairs today ought to step back and think about this. Amen. And the implications this has in the New Covenant context. Take a pot shot at God's elect. Take a pot shot at, at His sons and daughters and find out what ultimately happens. Sonship carried with it certain rights and certain privileges. And as such, the commission of the king, as we see it here in Psalm 2, is to make Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, visible in all the earth. This king who is appointed, this anointed one, Jesus Christ, was and is to be a physical expression of the divine, invisible God. The king's rule is by decree, and it's subsequent to his coronation, whereby he is crowned, whereby a special document was read and placed in the hand of the king, and then the king's head was anointed with oil, and then a pronouncement was made that the king officially received the kingdom, and this confirmed the whole realm was now his. We get a picture of that in Revelation 19. When Christ returns in all of his glory and splendor with the saints and angels in tow. And guess what? If you know Christ, you're going to be there. Amen. You will be an eyewitness when you return with the Lord. Do we have any indication that Jesus Christ was confirmed to be the king that is spoken of here in Psalm 2? Indeed we do. In fact, there are 18 references in the New Testament to Psalm 2. Don't worry, I'm not going to read them all. <laughs> but I think we need to look at a couple of them. Keeping your finger in Psalm 2 and turning over to the Gospel of Matthew, let's just look at a couple of these. The first one is Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3, verse 17, the baptism of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is present here. Let me back up to verse 16. And it says in Matthew 3, 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So at the baptism, the, the inauguration of the three-year ministry of Jesus Christ, we have, we have a portion of Psalm 2 here. Again, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 17, Matthew 17 and verse 5, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. Much later in the ministry of Christ, remember you have John and James and Peter and they're, they're all there. And in verse 5, it says there, of Matthew 17, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Further indication that Jesus Christ is the anointed one that is spoken of in Psalm 2. Let's look at one other. Hebrews chapter 1. Turning back to Hebrews. Hebrews 1 and verse 5. 
There it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You see that very unique covenant relationship spoken of in, in Samuel, 2 Samuel 2 on the Davidic covenant. That father-son relationship. The uniqueness special to a father and son. One last one. Revelation 19. The end of the tribulation. The church was raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. The church is now returning along with the angels with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 19 and verse 15, we read these verses. This is speaking of Christ as he sits on his white steed. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The nations that are frothing at the mouth. The nations that are raging and railing against God and against the anointed one. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Psalm 2. This underscores the rights and privileges of Christ to seize the kingdom by the force that is necessary, that is bequeathed to him by the Father. There's a special privilege here of, of the king, which is found in his special relationship, his unique relationship with the Father. And so he rules by decree. He also rules universally, verses 8 and 9. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. This is his inheritance. His inheritance by divine right and the first order of business of the king when he arrives on the scene is to quell the rebellion that you see in verses 1 through 3 and to use whatever force is necessary to achieve the objective. And in so doing, King Jesus will bring stability that the human forces and powers and governments never could bring. And so it says here in verse 8 that he will rule with a rod of iron. That is symbolic of an implement of implacable strength. Absolute strength. And while his absolute strength is inconceivable, it is still gilded and committed by his love. And he will smash and shatter the rebellious like earthenware. In some of the ancient Near Eastern societies, they would write the names of their opposing kings and enemies on a wet clay pot. And they would have that clay jar or that clay pot baked in the kiln. And then when it was done, they would place written curses inside that jar or that pot. 
And then standing before their commanders and their captains, they would lift the jar above their head, and with all of the force that they could muster, they would throw that jar down, and they would dash it in thousands of pieces. And this symbolized what they hoped to do to their enemies as they sought to secure the favor of the gods and goddesses which they served. And so the confederacy of the rebellious gives way to the divine comedic response of the Lord. We get a scene or a picture of the certain rule of the king by divine decree. And then finally in scene four, we are treated to the compassionate reminder to the rebellious. Reading again from verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, it doesn't end at verse 9. It ends with another call. It ends with an invitation. It ends with a warning and a reminder, a compassionate reminder to the nations that seethe and rage against God and His anointed. It is here that we see God in His grace, God in His mercy, as He issues one more reminder, a call to the rebels of the international resistance. What kind of a call is it that he issues here? Firstly, it is a call to be wise. Verse 10. O kings, be wise. Those who one would think would have a modicum of wisdom by virtue of their education, by virtue of their high positions, don't have any wisdom. This is a call for them to wise up, to display some common sense and spiritual discernment before it is too late. But wisdom eludes them, just as it seemingly does now. And God will ultimately use the weak and the beggarly things to confound the wise and the powerful, which is why the cross of Jesus Christ is a scandal to most. It is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And before the cross of Christ, that is where fools will double down on what is oftentimes called stupid. <laughs> it isn't that they're not intellectually smart. It isn't that they didn't get good grades. It isn't that they, they didn't win Nobel Prizes and we're Rhodes scholars, it is that they are the proverbial fools of the book of Proverbs. They do not know how to rightly apply the knowledge that they do have. And in so doing, they malapply it and they, they show that they are dedicated fools. <clears throat> and so God calls them to wisdom. And a wisdom that only comes from above. 
Not only is this a call to be wise, it is a call to worship. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. They are to serve and fear God. Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom, is to fear God, right? And rejoice. This is not a contradiction. This is a divine truism where we both fear and rejoice simultaneously. The rejoicing comes from making Him your hiding place. Making God your harbor of refuge in a time of storm and knowing that one is forgiven because of the merit of the cross that is applied to the sinner's account. It's a call to worship. It's a call to be wise. And thirdly, it is a call to submit. Verse 12, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Literally, pay homage. Pay homage to the Son. Kiss the Son. And in Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture, this was a symbolic act of submission that had certain political overtones. It's interesting here that the term Son is written in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. And so the word son here in verse 12 is bar, not ben, or bane, as it's correctly pronounced. Why? Well, we really don't know. But I go with one of the prevailing theories that states that because Psalm 2 is addressing the heathen nations, the Gentile nations, that here an Aramaic term, which was the language of the day, just like English is today, was inserted. And so he's reaching out to the Gentile nations. Kiss the Son. It's a call to submission, not a call to power. And finally, it is a call to spiritual rest. The second part of verse 12. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Make Him the final resting place. Hebrews 4. One of my favorite Old Testament commentators said, It is wise to submit to the authority of the Messiah because God has decreed that He will put down all rebellion and rule the world. What's the significance then for us today? Well, let me just give you two primary ramifications. The first is to unbelievers, and the second is to believers. Or as I oftentimes refer to them, the ain'ts and the saints. The ain'ts first, the unbelievers. The warning is unequivocally clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through His Word now. Do not delay. The clock is ticking. The hour is later than you think. You might say, but, but I believe in God. But if you reject the Son, you reject the way of the cross, then by default you reject the Father as well. Yes, sir. And so the message is clear. Repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ while it is still today. And to the believers, 
there's a twofold message here. Number one, be encouraged. Be encouraged that the rebellious resistance, the, the secular anarchy that we now see will not last forever. The disturbances of the present, the cancel culture will all run its course and it will finally be quashed by God himself. So submit to his lordship because the life that we now live is a dress rehearsal for the life to come. Be encouraged. Secondly, be evangelistic. Be missional. Evangelistically make his name known among the nations. Take verses 10, 11, and 12 to those around you, to friends, to family, to neighbors, and to the, to the nations. Because we are the present day vehicle for the call that echoes forth from verses 10 through 12. And so keep the volume to the compassionate call high until the Lord returns for his church. Until every ear shall hear until every eye shall see and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord indeed. Can you see the implications for the Great Commission here? This is what it's all about. So let us not cower. Let us not shrink into the corner. Not, let us not shirk our duty to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes. Mm. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Faith Act and Bible Church. I thank you for leadership here. I thank you for the faithful who continue to worship here and to serve here. May you use them in this place. May you use them in this community. May you use them in this lost and dying, hell-bound world to shine forth the gospel light of Jesus Christ, to extend a cup of kindness and compassion to those who don't even know the meaning of the word. And Father, may you help us to turn the volume up on this compassionate reminder to, the world, to a world that's becoming more deranged by the day. Help us to exercise a holy boldness that only comes from above. Give us the grace, the strength, and the mercy, and the wisdom that we need to live out and to proclaim the gospel call. May Christ be magnified. May he be glorified in and through us. And we pray it all in his matchless name. Amen. Did more singing? I think so. One moment here. I'm just getting everything reset. But as you uh, as that happens. Turning, turning your hand out there to uh, the middle song, page probably uh, five.
or so, facing a task unfinished. Let's stand as we sing this in response to uh, what we heard today, facing a task unfinished. Let's go and proclaim that name together. You're dismissed.